0: Welcome to Bread! From the beginning, God's people have engaged in the regular worship of God. From a biblical perspective, not only is worship of God our highest calling, it is in fact integral to who we are. So understanding what worship is, how we do it, and practicing it enables us to become more fully ourselves. This short series covers the worship life of Bread. From sung worship and services on a Sunday, to a general posture of worshipfulness throughout our daily lives, to worshiping God with our resources, our time, and our gifting. Enjoy!
1: Uh, we are continuing our, um, uh, our series on worship. Uh, I was going to make a joke there. Doesn't, don't worry. Uh, last week, uh, Ben spoke about worship in the Spirit. And today I want to build on what he said as we look at uh, worship in the Spirit in the church, specifically worship in the Spirit in our services. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there isn't actually all that much to go on in terms of kind of painting a full picture of what worship services looked like in the early church. Uh, there's a few hints here and there like um, they always broke bread together and they um, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they shared their possessions and they worshipped and they prayed, those sorts of things, but nothing um, much more detailed than that. The most detailed depiction is found uh, in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, and that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. So a little bit of context um, as we get into it. Corinth was this sort of affluent port city, Uh, It was a kind of melting point of lots of different cultures and ideas. People would come from all over. Uh, It was influenced by um, a lot of kind of strong pagan and uh, pluralistic uh, things. There were lots of sort of um, temples devoted to various Roman gods uh, and Greek gods, and there was sort of uh, quite a kind of um, open licentiousness to Corinth. Basically, anything goes. It's a little bit like L.A. The place you want to go for an orgy, Corinth. That's where um, you would find the best ones, by the way. Anyway, (laughs) the fledgling church that uh, Paul has planted there is a mixture of probably a handful of highly uh, influential rich people, uh, a few of those, and then quite a lot of people from lowly status. And almost certainly the church was meeting in the house or houses of uh, the rich influential people. One of the main subjects that Paul addresses in Corinth is the subject of spiritual gifts. The Greek word is charisma, charismata is the plural. Charis means grace. So um, literally this just means grace given, a a grace-filled thing. Uh, They are made up of grace, they are given by grace, and they are for grace, for grace to overflow into every person in the church. And what happens in the first uh, letter to the Corinthians is Paul gets to chapter 12, and he addresses uh, the charismata, the spiritual gifts, specifically. And what he is arguing for is that you've got to go for a diversity of them. They are all from the Spirit. The Spirit gives them as he wills. And so Paul says you've got to let God be in charge. He decides who gets what, when, and how, and where. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of spiritual gifts, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, nor to neglect them, and he praises them that they aren't actually lacking in any of them, chapter 1, verse 7, and he encourages them to eagerly desire them all the more, chapter 12, verse 31. And so we, as followers of Jesus, as people of the New Testament, should do the same, shouldn't we? We should not be ignorant about them. We should not be lacking in them. We should try and excel in all the spiritual gifts, and we should eagerly desire more of them, should we not, if we're going to take the Bible seriously. The problem comes in Corinth because there seems to be, amongst some of them, this sort of fixation on only one gift, almost certainly the gift of tongues, as we shall see in a minute. And for those who are exercising this gift or any of the gifts, it's become like a badge of honor to them. They are then led to look down on anyone who is not exercising these spiritual gifts, and they see them as less spiritual, less um, kind of advanced, less uh, kind of godlike, which then, therefore, leads Paul in the, in the next chapter, chapter 13, to give them this very strong rebuttal. If these gifts are given for the common good, which they are, says Paul, and yet they are call it, causing some of you to be proud, none of this actually counts for anything. No matter how spiritual it appears, whether it be the gift of tongues or prophecy or faith or whatever, if it does not manifest itself in love, it is worthless. You are like a clanging cymbal and a resounding gong. So, chapter 12, do all the gifts. Chapter 13, do all the love. And then in chapter 14, he combines both. Do all the love and do all the gifts together. And so, um, uh, yes, we're going to have the reading from chapter 14, verse one onwards. Hello.
0: Yes, come on. Hello. Chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you speak in prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with the spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongue in a tongue. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires, inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if any, un, but if any unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all.
1: Thank you, Connor. Um, I do love uh, Paul. <laughs> I, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. You don't get, that's like peak Paul. No wonder people don't like him. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Ghana, uh, for reading that. Um, so preliminary questions. There's quite a lot here. I'm going to try and um, touch on everything. Preliminary questions out of the way first. Why discuss any of this at all? Aren't there more important things to talk about in church? Things like personal ethics or social justice or systematic theology. Well, yes, as I said, there isn't much written in the New Testament about worship services. So actually, we probably don't need to worry too much about what goes on in worship services in terms of the actual sort of way of doing things, the processes. Uh, The question Christians have fought over since the beginning of um, time, whether our services should be more Catholic or more Baptist or more evangelical or more Pentecostal or more liberal, the answer to that is probably yes. They should. All of those things, all of those things which are good and point to Jesus, we should go for all of that. I actually, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, really sort of Catholic in background, but I do quite like some reverence when it comes to um, uh, communion something which my children do not like, and try to eat as much of it as possible. I'm trying to explain to them that there's actually something else going on here. But anyway, all the stuff that is good, let's go for. And equally, all the stuff that isn't, we shouldn't be wedded to it just because it's our tradition. Right? Good. So yes, probably as Paul does, we want to spend our time, most of it, looking at belief and behavior. But... What goes on in a service is actually an extension of our beliefs and behaviors, isn't it? And as Paul says, good practice when it comes to worship, verse 5, is important so that it edifies the church. The church is a living, breathing organism. And like any living, breathing organism, it needs to grow, otherwise it will die. I have now... um, kind of made my peace, sort of, with this. But I'm 43 years old. I know, you can't believe it, can you? No, please, stop. I know you think I'm, no, don't, don't. I, I, I really am 43. Uh, and, and it's been a while since I haven't been at my peak humanhood. Uh, I don't know when that is, 18, 23? Not 23? Uh, it's, it's 57. Uh, is peak. Anyway, um, but I am on the decline. The church does not have to decline, but it will unless it's edified. It will unless it is built up and encouraged. Did you know that uh, I think probably two years ago, um, for the first time in this country's history, more people identified not as Christian than as Christian? And Church decline, as you may be aware, um, has been happening all over through every um, different denomination in every different part of this country for some time. It's only going one way. The same is true throughout um, the Western world. The Church is growing in the Global South. And the Church is growing in the Global South, particularly through Charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Now, I don't call myself Pentecostal. Um, I, I'm charismatic in in the small c sense of the word, um, uh, but not as a charismatic um, uh, kind of denomination. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that's the only church that's growing. Perhaps because, as Paul says, these spiritual gifts edify and grow the church. So, verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit it is always both and, not either or. Sadly for many churches, it's not the case. Either the gifts of the spirit become everything and then they are exercised in a unloving or superior manner, making exactly the same mistake that the Corinthians make here, or often in reaction to how the gifts have been misused, churches throw the baby out with the bathwater, choosing to uh, neglect the gifts entirely to make sure that no one ever gets upset. Of course, we would never want to excuse wrongful use, but as one commentator put it, the correct treatment for abuse is not disuse, but proper use, right? The gifts of the Spirit are precisely that, gifts from the Spirit, from the actual living God. So it would be churlish at best, and, and I say this advisedly, bordering, I think, on idolatry for us to reject the things that the big G-O-D wants to give us, would it not? So, let us all follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts, both and and. So this morning, firstly, the gifts, what are they and how do they work? And then secondly, the way of love. How do we do everything for the common good, for the building up of the church? What are the gifts? Specifically, I am going to look at tongues and prophecy this morning, but in general, all the gifts work in a similar way. So, for those of you who follow Jesus, within you is the Holy Spirit. Jesus put him there. He's not going anywhere. As uh, Jesus said, he is like this um, bubbling spring of eternal life welling up in our very depths. He says this to the woman at the well in John 4 and to the gathered crowd in John 7. So no longer is the spirit constrained to the tabernacle or to the temple. He is the presence in every single believer. As Ben talked about uh, last week, um, he is there so that we might experience God with us all the time. Now, we can obviously cause the flow of the Spirit in us to kind of dry up and go to a little trickle through things that grieve the Spirit, like sin, like not believing who God is, like carrying on patterns of behavior that destroy us. That stops the Spirit flowing, what Paul calls giving into the flesh, becoming like we were rather than what we are. And though... Conversely, we can allow the Spirit to flow a lot more the more we actually are in step with Him, doing the things that He likes, praying, worshipping, being with God's people, encouraging one another, doing all the things that are spiritual, that are Spirit-filled, allows the Spirit to flow more in us. You don't have to, but you can, and it's better for you. But the Spirit is also, of course, completely independent of us. He is God at work in the world since the beginning of time. And so when we ask the Spirit to come, come Holy Spirit, when we gather together as a group of people, it's like these little babbling brooks of Spirit come into contact with this huge rushing stream of God's presence here right in the room. I was trying to work out how to um, illustrate this. Ben talked about a portal. Uh, I'm gonna move from a portal to the stream thing, but I wanted to point out that thing. Who knows what that is? No one. Uh, But look at it. Now, imagine all God's spirit pouring out of that, right? Just pouring down like a huge gushing river, pouring down from that thing, okay? That's probably what it is. So here I am, with my little babbling brook. And then we together are saying, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, here it is, pouring out. Now, my babbling brook is here. I could just dip a toe in, yes, I did study ballet. Uh, I could dip a toe in, I could put a whole leg, I could put my whole head, I could just sit here, allowing it to flow, right? Good, that worked. (laughs) You're too kind. The language uh, Luke uses in Acts for Pentecost uh, is like that of a tropical rainstorm. The disciples, it says, are drenched by the Holy Spirit. The whole of of him just filling them and and overflowing over them. This is the reason why some people have called um, the experience of the Spirit a baptism in the Spirit. It's not a baptism in the Spirit, um, but you can understand the language. Unlike actual baptism, This isn't a one-and-done thing. You can be baptized, you can be flooded by the Spirit as many times as you like. You can have 20 baptisms in the Spirit. I believe in the first baptism, the second baptism, the third baptism, the fourth baptism, all the baptisms of the Spirit, okay? As many as you like. Paul says, be filled, and go on being filled by the Spirit over and over again in his letter to the Ephesians. So, imagine, here I am with my little babbling brook, and there is the raging stream of God's spirit as we gather together and invite the Holy Spirit and I step into the spirit I open myself to what the spirit's doing he floods me and then because he's so nice he gives gifts to me and to you and to anyone who wants them and he decides to give gifts because he wants to be good and he wants to help us the gifts are there for the common good for the building up of the church All of the gifts are gifts for the building up of one another, apart from the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is given to build you yourself up. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. This is the gift that is exclusively for you, not other people. So imagine you enter the river, God pours out his spirit, and you receive the gift of tongues. What you are doing then is speaking to God, back to him, okay? It's going directly to him. Verse two, indeed, no one understands you. You utter mysteries by the spirit. You're not talking to other people, you are talking to God. So tongues is like this kind of precognitive or better, post-cognitive speech. It's our spirit Communicating with God's spirit. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. As Ben um, was demonstrating last week, in worship we can start by making sounds in our worship that are not words. We had psalms, we had um, hymns, and spiritual songs in Ben's languages. These songs that are new songs to us. We are, we are making sounds that don't come from our mind. They come from our spirit. It's a heart expression to God of worship and prayer. Now, that is not tongues, but it is a good way of preparing ourselves to receive the gift of tongues. Tongues. Because it takes our brain out of the picture. Our brain that says, oh, you shouldn't do tongues. Didn't you remember that teaching you were told about tongues being evil and demonic? Don't do tongues, don't do tongues, don't do tongues. Complete, utter BS. No biblical um, evidence for that at all. It takes our brain out of the picture. Not that because our brain is not important, but our spirit is important. And we need our spirits to connect to his spirit if you think of times when you are most happy. Some friends of ours um, just uh, had their first child born, and they sent a very, very long text, just going, it's, one, it's amazing. It's like they basically couldn't express themselves, so they carried on expressing themselves for ages and ages because they were so, so happy. If you imagine, everything's happening today. Uh, if you imagine when you're very sad, your words fail you, right? There are not words enough to express your heart. This is a very similar way in which tongues works. Our cognitive language can't express the depth of our feelings sometimes, be it worship or prayer. And the gift is given to help us to worship and to pray, to help us connect to God. It's like a spirit language, which Paul says in Romans 8 is of sighs and groans too deep for words. It's our spirit connecting to his spirit. Now, we need to participate in it, which is why what Ben did last week was so helpful to get us into that place. And then God gives us the gift, enabling us to connect to him. So we're in the river, we're worshiping God, he pours out the gift of tongues and we use it to speak back to him. It's like our private language of prayer and worship, expressing the inexpressible. But, of course, it means nothing to anyone else. Verse 16. When you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else say, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, Amen, to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? Have you ever heard someone speak in tongues? Do you know what they're saying? No, you don't. It sounds absolutely ridiculous. You are giving thanks well enough but no one else is edified. You are doing great. You are there, praising and worshipping God, going, this is amazing. Habba-dabba-duba-dabba. yibba We should all do our favorite sounds that we've ever heard. She come on a Honda. <laughs> You're doing great because, verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Because tongues is for you. It is good for you. And so for that reason, do not neglect it. Can I ask you a question? Do you need help with your spiritual life? <laughs> so, would you not like to go for the thing that might help you? Is your, spiritual, is your worship life, is your prayer life quite dry? Is it like in the greatest film ever made, The Three Amigos? Is it a bit like when Steve Martin, as he's wandering through the desert, the Mexican desert, in the sweltering heat, gets his water canister out and tries to, and just one drip lands on his thing. And then Martin Short gets one out And only sand comes out onto his face. And then Chevy Chase pulls it out and water, just cold water, splashing over his face. He drinks, he drinks, he throws it on the ground. It just dribbles out, Martin Short and uh, Steve Martin, look at him going, (gasps) and then he puts some lip balm on and goes, would you like some lip balm? Is your spiritual life full of sand? Is it actually really dry? Is being a Christian really hard work? Has it always been really hard work? do you not need some help even if it's just slightly okay from time to time wouldn't you like more tongues builds you up it's a wonderful gift that will transform your worship and prayer life in untold ways your experience of god will deepen Verse 39, do not prohibit the gift of tongues, says Paul. So don't prohibit it, including prohibiting it to yourself. Rather, verse 1, eagerly desire it, along with all the others. Now, no one has to speak in tongues. You will be fine. You'll be fine if you don't speak in tongues. That's fine. But everyone can. There is no sense in the New Testament that the gift of tongues is particular or restricted to a few people. In verse 23, Paul says, if the church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, which clearly shows that Paul believes this is a possibility for everyone. Everyone can. No one has to. But let us try and follow Paul here. Verse verse 15, he says, I will pray in my spirit. I'll also pray in my understanding. I will sing with my spirit but I will also sing with my understanding. It's not either or, it's always both and. So let me ask you another question. Do you err on the understanding-minded, rational, theological side, or do you err on the supernatural, spirit-filled, tongues, post-cognitive side? Whichever is weaker or more unnatural or less experienced, build that side up. It will do you good whichever side you land on. So that's tongues. It's a gift. It's post-cognitive. It's from God. It builds us up. It's to God, but it's not to the church. Prophecy, on the other hand, is to the church. So here I am again with my babbling brook of the Spirit. I step into the rushing river of God's Spirit. I experience the Spirit in a more profound way, and the Spirit graces me with the gift of prophecy. Verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. To prophesy is to speak not to God, but to one another. It is to tell people what we feel like God is saying in the moment. So prophecy is not specifically foretelling, it's not fortune telling, it's not telling the future. It's much more forth telling, saying what God wants to say right now, bringing forth God's word for people in the moment. And it is always, and the test is, is it strengthening, encouraging, and comforting? I mentioned this before, but a couple of weeks ago, um, actually, it's probably a couple of months ago now, I was, I was um, sitting in the service, and for a while, I, I felt I was doubting a lot. I was um, feeling very lonely. I was questioning everything. Just to let you into what one of your pastors has been doing. Hannah was fine. She was, she'll be fine. I, though, having a bit of a crisis here on the front row. And then we um, had a time of prophecy. Someone uh, said, let's prophesy. And someone came up, and it's just so simple. They said, I just feel like God is saying to some people here, God is here to protect you and to preserve you and to strengthen you. And it's like it hit me right in the heart. I burst into tears on the front row. It's very weird for everyone else. I burst into tears in the front row because I knew God had spoken and it lifted me up. It encouraged me. I didn't doubt anymore. I felt like God is real. He likes me and he's speaking to me. It was like the rest of the service didn't matter. That was it. I got it. It It's wonderful. So that's the gifts. What about the love? So what appears to be the problem in Corinth is that the church gatherings have become about everyone speaking in tongues, and specifically everyone speaking in tongues from the front, probably one by one, publicly, with no interpretation at all. So it would be like, I'd go, right, who's got a tongue? Someone come up and say, and they go and sit down, and everyone round of applause. And someone else would come up, round of applause, go and sit down. This would happen the whole time. For Paul, this is a big problem because it shows a lack of love. Verse 23. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God really is among you the lack of love problem is twofold. Firstly, if everyone is speaking in tongues, they are only building themselves up, not the church. And so they are being loveless to the fellow believers. And secondly, if everyone is speaking in tongues and unbelievers walk in the door, unbelievers will not understand what's going on because everything will sound like gobbledygook. The unbelievers will then mistakenly think that everyone is out of their mind, even though the reality is they're not out of their mind at all. In fact, they are experiencing the presence of the Spirit. But unbelievers will think so and therefore dismiss the whole thing. This is therefore showing a lack of love to those outside the church. So some points to make here. Firstly, Paul just assumes that people who don't believe will be present in all the church's gatherings. This has to be the norm for us. Church is not and should never be a closed shop to anyone. Church has to be somewhere where everyone, irrespective of belief, lifestyle, status, anything, is welcome. That they can come in and they can hang out at the back and just watch us for as long as they like. It's why we say you're here on your own terms, because you are. When you first arrive, you are here on your own terms for as long as you want to be here on your own terms. If you decide to follow Jesus, good idea, you're then here on his terms, and he may change you if you let him. You don't have to let him. It would be good if you did. But it's why church has to be somewhere where people who don't believe come in, and everything we do needs to at least acknowledge that people don't actually believe what we believe or understand what we uh, are talking about, and therefore we have to explain it. Secondly, the issue Paul has is not with Spirit-filled gatherings. The issue he has is obviously that he wants the Spirit to be flowing as much as possible. That great thing to just be pouring out the Spirit through the whole church so that we're actually in a swimming pool. This would be a great swimming pool, very deep. But it's also, his problem is not just with tongues, per se. As he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, ha, ha, ha. His problem is with tongues being the only gift that anyone cares about, and specifically, tongues spoken publicly without interpretation or explanation. From time to time, we have gathered together, and at the end of worship, we have um, encouraged people to sing in tongues themselves in the pew by themselves. This is the private language between you and God. It is not up at the front. It is not so that everyone can hear you singing. It's really just between you and God. Now, sometimes I think it's appropriate for those who already speak in tongues to sing quite loudly, not so that they are heard or so that they dominate, but that it gives a sort of covering for everyone else who's a bit new and a bit more self-conscious to be able to give it a go themselves. I don't think Paul would have any problem with this at all, because what we're not doing is going, hey, here's a really loud public tongue that we're not going to interpret. That would be a no-no. This is actually just about us singing to God by ourselves, and we're not really listening to anyone else, Right? It's why we always say, don't worry about what other people are thinking, they're worrying about themselves. But it's why it's appropriate to do that from time to time, because it helps us, right? It gives us the opportunity to commune with God on a much deeper level. Having said all that, though, Paul prefers prophecy in public settings, because it will not fail the love tests. It builds everyone else up, and it is easily understood by outsiders. Indeed, it can be so powerful that someone can walk in from the outside and hear God speak to them directly and immediately bow down and worship. I've seen this happen quite a few times. Where someone has prophesied, someone doesn't believe and knows that that is exactly about them and all of a sudden they're going, oh my goodness, God is really alive here. He's speaking to me and I've got to follow him. That's why I love prophecy. We should always go for prophecy. How then, verse twenty-two is tongues a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, and prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. Don't worry, I'm getting to the end. We would, given what Paul has just explained, expect the opposite: no? that tongues would be a sign to believers, and prophecy assigned to unbelievers. Well, the way to understand this is to see that the sign that Paul is talking about is a sign of whether someone has recognized the Spirit of God or not. Tongues is a sign not for believers but for unbelievers in that it is a sign that unbelievers haven't recognized the Spirit of God. It is not their fault, as Paul has said to the church, they should not be putting unbelievers in this position at all, but tongues does signify to the unbeliever that they have not recognized the Spirit because they mistake what actually is the Spirit, i.e. the speaking in tongues, to being people out of their mind. Likewise, prophecy is a sign for the believer for the fact that when unbelievers hear prophecy, they may well then bow down and start worshiping God, saying God is really among you, look, he's speaking. And that is a sign to all the believers going, oh yeah, look, God really is among us, this is amazing. He's even speaking to the unbelievers. So it's a sign to them. Got it? Good. It's not that interesting. I find it interesting. So to end. Given that we are neither to neglect love nor the gifts, how do we prophesy for the common good And how do we speak in tongues publicly for the common good? Obviously, when it comes to prophecy, anything purporting to be from God will be in line with everything else that we know that God has already said about himself and the world and us. So in order for prophecy to be prophecy, it has to 100% be biblical. So no, God has not just suddenly told you that murder is great or that lust is fine And no, God has not just suddenly told you the exact times and places and dates of Jesus' return. You fool. Secondly, the church it is who gets to decide whether the prophecy is actually what God is saying, not the person giving the prophecy. Verse 29, we didn't read this, but let me carry on. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. The job of the prophet is to say what they think God is saying. They just need to deliver the mail, not care too much about what the mail actually says. The job of everyone else is to read the mail and work out, is that what God is actually saying? In my experience, you know when you know. Just out of, I, I don't like doing this because I don't want to put you on support. Just out of, out of interest, does anyone raise your hand if you have experienced someone prophesying it, uh, just hitting you, and you know it's for you. Yeah, interesting. You just know. If you don't know, don't worry. You don't have to, oh, I want, maybe, maybe it could be. No, it, it, it probably isn't. Just leave it. It's fine. We're all practicing when it comes to this. If someone says something, you just, I just don't know. It's okay. You can leave it. But don't let non-prophesying stop us from trying to prophesy. As Paul says, eagerly desire it. The language is like salivating for it, desperately longing for it. What my children do is not fill up our dog's water bowl enough. And now it's hot. He's there going, and I go, has anyone given the dog any water? That's what you should be like. You should be salivating like my dog for the water, the water of God's spirit. Eagerly desire it. Thirdly, I think the two or three prophets speaking is um, surely just a sort of pragmatic suggestion. The issue is, if we had 20 different prophecies every service, it'd be quite hard to keep track of what actually is being said. You've kind of forgotten the third one. What did they say, the second one? If you have two or three, you can kind of remember them. And I always find it exciting when two or three people completely independently basically say exactly the same thing in different words. That tends to be a sign that that is actually what God is saying. Fourthly, you do not have to prophesy. This is important. Listen to this. You do not have to prophesy even if you feel extremely strongly like God has spoken to you. Verse 32 The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. You are in control. As we have often said, the issue for the prophetic person is not hearing God speak, that comes quite naturally. It is knowing when and how to share it with anyone, or if to share it with anyone. So mature in your gifting and learn how to prophesy when it is appropriate. Remember, the gift is subject to your control. You don't have to if you don't want to, if you don't think it's right. You don't, I've got to say this. No, you don't. Shut up. In a nice way. (laughs) However, if you are new to prophecy, disregard what I just said. Just start using the gift as much as you possibly can. Because you need to strengthen that muscle. The more you do it, the more you will actually go, oh, that really was God's voice, the more it will become normal. I would love it if everyone prophesies. Just as Paul says, do it and do it and do it. It does not matter if you make a mistake. Far better to make some mistakes while trying to get better than to never try at all. How did you learn to ride a bike? How did you learn to play the guitar? How did you learn to do anything but by trying and making mistakes? So make mistakes. Here is a safe place. You can make as many mistakes as you like. We will tell you when you're making mistakes and if you need to stop making mistakes, but just give it a go, right? How to use public tongues with love. There are relatively um, rare, I would say, instances when tongues isn't just about us singing and praying privately together, whether on our own or in a group like this. There is actually a public tongue given so that everyone hears it. Now, in my experience, this usually happens after quite a spirit-filled, powerful time of worship. It's like everyone's worshiping, everyone's caught up in all the wonder, love, and praise, and then someone just sings out loudly or speaks out loudly a tongue, right? This is not in any way prohibited. In fact, we should try and do this. However, that is when an interpretation needs to come, because otherwise, it means nothing, right? We're just going, to well, wonder what happened, I don't know. They know, no one else knows. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. Now often, it's the speaker who um, is the interpreter. They, after all, are in the best position to express with their cognitive mind what their spirit has just said. But sometimes it can be someone else. What tongues is, though, it is not prophecy. Is tongues prophecy? Good. Tongues is tongues, prophecy is prophecy. As we have said, tongues is about speaking to God. So a public interpretation of tongues will be of that um, order. It will be worship and prayer, something that you say to God. I love you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring your kingdom. Fill this place with your presence. We're grieving for a lack of your justice in the world. It is prayer, it is worship, it is not prophecy. Prophecy is to us, tongues to God. So, to end. As Hannah said, we all get to play. So, can I challenge you? When you come to church, every single Sunday, could you at least ask yourself these questions? How can I be used in this service? How can God speak to me today? What gifts does he want to give to me so that I can build up the rest of the church? How can I edify bring love to the congregation would you mind just do it for one week and if you don't like it never do it again no do it every week that's when church becomes really exciting because we don't just sit here and go oh that sermon was okay that sermon was right i like the worship it becomes god is here at work moving in the building what could he he could be healing people he could be setting people free he could be giving words to people that completely change their lives Otherwise, isn't church just a bit boring and we're just kind of playing at it? This is how we grow. This is how the church does not die. Do you want to be the only person here in five years' time? I don't think so. So let us take Paul very seriously. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts. Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Each one has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Should we have a go at that now? Yes, we should. Let's start.